Hi friends, it's Kristen here, and welcome to another episode of Broadly Underestimated. Today we're going to continue our conversation with Snow Widow's author, Catherine McGinnis. Where we left off in the previous episode, three men from the infamous Robert Scott Antarctic Expedition were lying dead in their tent, and two men were missing. So in today's episode, we'll talk about disappearances, when you're truly the last one in the world to know something, and creating legends. So buckle up. Welcome to Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to the underestimated ways to view the stories of our past. There are countless angles from which our history can be told, and each one of them offers an opportunity to travel back in time and see the world in a way that we've never seen it before. At the moment that the men in the Scott expedition were dying, their mothers and wives were expecting news from them. And in fact, they were just receiving a year's worth of letters from them that had been sent back with the Terra Nova when it returned with news that the expedition would take a second year. Now, this part of the story brings out an unexpected and fascinating element, and that is Catherine McInnes herself. Apart from being a fabulous writer, she has a pretty personal connection to the Snow Widows. When we spoke, I asked her how this untold story had come to her, and it turned out that she had a similarly terrifying experience, though hers gratefully had a happier ending. My husband climbed Everest when our three children were very small, so I deliberately looked for these women for, for inspiration. To start with, I started asking people who were alive, explorers who were alive, and I asked their wives, you know, how they dealt with it. And these wives were just having to be too brave. And I just felt they had enough to deal with. They didn't need to answer questions from me as well. And so then I thought, right, I'm going to just look for people who are very dead and can't be offended and can't be put on the spot. And so that's how I met these snow widows. And I found them a total inspiration. I mean, they're completely alive for me. And I hope they will be for people who read the book. Did you find that their strength and stoicism was a good sort of tool for you as well, going through your own experience? Absolutely. But mine was different in that Sebastian could call by mobile phone from the top of <laughs> to Well, can't get them any safer. I couldn't then go up the phone line and make sure that he would come down alive. And there are 200 bodies on the top of Everest still. So it's still a dangerous thing to do. So, yes, I particularly was looking at how Lois was dealing with young children because I had three young children. And so that was, you know, it was definitely going through my mind. So that's why I really wanted to know where they were all the time and how they felt and try and find out as much fact, you know, about their context so I could really live it. So I think that's why it kind of comes across as slightly a lived experience, although I am not them. You know, what you were saying at the beginning about it being immersive, you know, that is just what happens if you really need to know something, (laughs) you find it out. Throughout this book, Catherine presents the communication methods of the time almost as characters in and of themselves. The expansion of cable and telephone lines during this period was huge, and suddenly, news could arrive at lightning speed compared to the slow pace of letters. And so the book presents this massive contrast between the total isolation of the explorers in Antarctica, who were completely cut off from any kind of world news or word from family, versus the women 
who continued living their lives surrounded by news and communications that hummed across oceans. And the way that cables buzzed around the globe created arguably one of the more gut-wrenching parts of our story. So there is a very um, big part of the book in the middle, which is about this news coming back, which took me a very long time to sequence. But it is the most incredible story of how these telegrams whizzed around the world. Um, so Ariana Wilson, if we're starting with that picture of five, if we start on the left again, Ariana Wilson was in New Zealand and she got a telephone call from the New Zealand expedition agent saying, please come back to Christchurch. So she thought, wonderful, the Terra Nova is expected. I know that it's supposed to be a secret because the central news agency in Britain, which is like Reuters, had a 24-hour exclusive right to the news in order for them to sponsor the expedition £8,000. The expedition was in terrible debt and that £8,000 now would be a lot more money. So they were determined to be able to keep to the terms that Scott had negotiated, even though the people on the Terra Nova knew of the tragedy. So they landed two men um, in the middle of the night at Omaru and they sent a secret coded telegram to Britain. So they were going to try to uh, sell that news to the newspapers and Kinsey's idea was that he would be able to tell all the women of these five men privately. So Oriana, Edward Wilson's wife, is in New Zealand anyway, because she'd gone out early, hoping that she would see him earliest. And she uh, was looking for the top masts of the turnover coming over the horizon. And she was really excited. She couldn't believe she'd managed to wait two years to see him. She got in the train and she was going back up to Christchurch. And as this was happening, the news was going between New Zealand and uh, the central news agency based in Fleet Street in London. And when she uh, got halfway to Ashburton, she noticed out of the train window that people were putting up a poster and there seemed to be a crowd gathering around a news poster. She'd wondered what that was about. Uh, then the train set off again and suddenly some friends of hers from New Zealand burst into the carriage of the moving train. They'd galloped to the train, which was a kind of, they used to go very slowly and there were only uh, narrow gauge railways in New Zealand. And they said that they'd heard a rumour that the Terranova was back and they wanted to be with her, you know, to sort of just to you know strengthen numbers. So they carried on in the train and it took all day for her to get from Omaru to Christchurch. When she got to Christchurch, she got out of the train, walked up the platform, really looking forward to seeing her husband finally after this phenomenally long wait. And as the steam cleared and the noise sort of reduced a bit, she heard a newspaper hawker um, calling out Antarctic tragedy and then called the names of the men who had died in public in a station from a newspaper hawker. Unbelievable. So I just wanted to take a second for us to process this. Since my true disbelief about a woman finding out that her husband had passed away from a newspaper hawker could only really be seen in my facial expression, which obviously can't be portrayed in a podcast, I felt the need to say something here. There are details in the book about why exactly the news became public before the wives and mothers of the party found out that their loved ones had died, and in part, it comes down to the race to be the first to report on a story. But in my opinion, none of the contributing factors make it okay that the public got the news at the same time that the Snow Widows did. So um, that is Oriana. So then 
Kathleen Scott to go one in from that picture. So Scott is beside Wilson. Kathleen Scott is in her boat going out from California to New Zealand. And at that point, Marconi's ship to shore wouldn't be able to reach that far. She was just in a normal boat. It didn't have amazing technology. It did have a telegram officer, but the radio uh, wave, Marconi hadn't managed to get it to, to reach that far. So she is in total ignorance on this boat. Um, so the next person beside Scott is Taff Evans in the middle. He's the ratings officer. So Lois had been taken back to the Gower by her cousin because she'd sold all the furniture, had no money. And in order to try and scrape a living, literally, she um, went down to the beach every low tide and scraped the sand with a rake and got cockles and put them in a jar and took them to Swansea, the nearest town, and sold them. Um, so she had gone down to the beach that morning and she had her youngest child, Ralph, with her and she was minding Lily Tucker, um, her cousin's, her, yes, her niece. And she suddenly saw somebody walking down the beach with a telegram. And the telegram was from her brother, Stan Bynan, who was in the Navy and had heard the news. And the telegram said, um, terrible news, try to bear up um, Stan, her brother. Um, and she didn't know what had happened. She just, she just, that was all she got. So then she went, with um, Will Tucker took her in the pony cart back up to her parents' house and a reporter turned up there and she said, uh, what's happened? I know something has happened. So the reporter had to tell her that her husband had died and he had died of, of concussion of the brain in February 1912. That concussion was sustained in a nasty fall and as Catherine describes in the book, the journey the men had to take to and from the pole was anything but a stroll through powdery snow. They were traversing mountains of ice and crevices. So he was the first of the five to die. Anyway, so he told her as much as he knew of that story. And her reaction was at least he didn't have to suffer for as long as the others because he had died first. So he hadn't had another month of marching on frostbitten feet. Um, but Incredibly, a um, photographer, while they were talking, was setting up a camera outside the um, house, very, very modest, one story, possibly one room um, hut on the Gower. And he said, could he take a photograph? So there's a picture of Lois just after she's had, which is in the book, actually. Incredible. Yeah. Talk about intrusive press. Yeah, my gosh. And so then... Um, Captain Oates, he's standing beside Taff in that picture of the five. And Caroline Oates was in her apartment in London getting ready for the day. Her daughter was staying. Her daughter was walking with her baby and the baby's nurse um, up the road to the park. And she saw a newspaper stand with big headlines in the news, news poster saying Antarctic tragedy and the names of the people who died. So she ran back to her mother hoping that the news was false news and it wasn't correct so you know she was ready to kind of phone their contacts and check and when she got back she found um her mother with the telegram so then the last person is birdie bowers and his mother emily was in rome at the time so she um was going to the British um, embassy and she used to go and look at the notice board every day because that's how she got the international news so she walked up to the notice board 
a, you know, she was a lovely but fairly old lady, and this was on the Piano Nobili, so it was on the second floor. So you can imagine she required an effort to get up the stairs, walk to the notice board, and there she saw the news um, that of the Antarctic strategy. That's how she found out that Birdie was dead. So she, neither of her daughters were with her. She was just alone in Italy. Anyway, so all the women, uh, apart from Kathleen Scott, know at this point, and um, the news was flashing around the world. It was bigger news than the Titanic. The whole world knew it by this stage. Um, and so they decided to have a memorial service in St. Paul's, and the king decided for the first time ever he would go to a funeral that wasn't for royalty. And they had the funeral and there were thousands of people in the streets. Um, there's a lot to unpack about that funeral. But um, anyway, they had this funeral. And uh, afterwards, the reporters wrote the most extraordinary thing about this phenomenal service is that uh, Kathleen Scott still doesn't know. Everybody around the world knows everybody standing around St Paul's which is a you know 10,000 people singing God Save the King and she doesn't know. Today it's pretty hard to relate to being so isolated from the news that you completely miss out on massive world events but I will say that this reminds me of some stories that were circulating shortly after COVID lockdowns in 2020 of people traveling in remote regions during February or March of 2020 only to emerge in April and to feel like they had entered some kind of alternate universe with no toilet paper. Anyway, so she was on her boat and eventually a week after everybody else knew another boat came from New Zealand with the news and she got the message on the boat. And it's interesting because she literally writes how she reacted in her diary. One of the reasons that I like doing this kind of stuff is that she says, um, how can I possibly wail when they've been so brave and they've gone through all this suffering? I will not complain. And she's trying to kind of master herself. But actually, when you look at the actual book, her writing deteriorates so much. It's, it looks as if she's put her pen in her left hand or that she's dictating to a child. So I can tell how she was feeling through what happens to her physically, because that level of emotion has a physical manifestation, which is how you hold the pen and you write. Just imagine feeling like you had to keep it together like that. As Catherine mentioned in the first part of our conversation, Kathleen had this incredible sense of self-mastery. So the fact that we can see this physical evidence of her emotional collapse is just incredible. It was. It was absolutely amazing. So, yes, the, this, the story about what happened to them afterwards is absolutely fascinating for me. And it starts with... Um, the last thing that Scott wrote in his diary was, uh, for God's sake, look after our people. And similarly, that a picture of that page is in the book, actually. And you can see that it is literally as he's dying. It's the last thing he can write. Um, and so because that message was um, titled Message for the Public, it was published in all the newspapers that had covered the tragedy. And there was an enormous outpouring of cash. But because of the class system at the time, um, Lord Curzon, who had become president of the Royal Geographic Society, decided how he was going to apportion that money. And um, it's a it's a quite a lot more of, about this in the book, which is really fascinating, I think, uh, about the discussions about it. And, and Kathleen becomes quite empowered. And, you know, uh, Curzon finds that he can't just mess these women around. 
um, and because they suddenly could control the legacy. But Curzon thinks that since they have, I think it's over 60,000 pounds, which is millions of pounds that was given by the public in response to that message, for God's sake, look after our people. He decided that, that maybe the RGS would, the Royal Geographic Society would keep some of the money. And so Kathleen said, it was given because of my husband writing this. If you don't give it to the women and the families, then the public will be angry and I don't want any controversy. Um, and so it's very interesting, the story of how that happened. So Curzon gave her an amount of money and Peter also some money, but the money that he gave to Lois, who um, was bringing out three small children is less than the money that he gave to Peter. And it was had to be paid annually to Lois, not in one lump sum in case she spent it all at once. And um, in order for her to get the allowance for the three children, she had to um, come to the office with three children alive every time, just in case she was going to claim if one died, she, you know. So it is an appalling reflection on uh, the perception of working class morality at the time. <laughs> I mean, no one can see this, but my jaw dropped. I remember reading this in the book, but hearing you say it again, it's just as shocking the second time around. But the lowest story, I don't want, I will, I don't want to say too much more about it, but um, there was a terrible backlash because Taff Evans had died first. And in Scott's diary, he said, Taff is becoming real nuisance. He's broken down in brain. That was uh, taken that he had become insane. That was, you know, they just in the, in the press. And so uh, the upshot of it was that it's very difficult to understand, but Taff's mother, Sarah Bynan, had um, a lot of her children had died from consumption or from uh, childhood diseases. And so she um, was very tough, a tough working class lady in the Gower. And when she heard this news, she felt that Taff, her son, might have held the others up. So she said to a reporter, I, I'm, I ever since I heard that um, they had to wait for him, I'm, I, I think that they should have left him behind and they would probably be here today. And so very ironically, that was taken up by the local community and uh, Taff and his family were blamed for the tragedy. And so Lois was terribly badly bullied and so were all her children and grandchildren. Now Taff is a, is a superhero and it's better, but it's just awful that it went on for so long. So they made uh, cigarette cards in cigarette packs, you know, little pictures that people collect. And it was a sort of public art, um, you know, educating people because after the Education Act in Britain, everyone could read. So they had these bits of paper which stiffened the back of the cigarettes, but they also had pictures on often. And they did pictures on things like the, the Royal Navy figureheads and explorers, and they did a set of match cards on these men, but they didn't include Taff. It's incredible. They had one of penguins, but they didn't have one of Taff. So yes, he. it was very difficult straight after this. He was definitely blamed for the tragedy, which is totally incorrect. He'd fallen into a crevasse. He'd probably had a brain hemorrhage. And also, um, isn't there some kind of consensus now among many issues that really the biggest things that sort of caused a lot of this tragedy were horrible weather and also not enough supply depot stations? Is that correct? Yeah. Or was... Absolutely, absolutely. There's also other stuff. I mean, this is why this story is so endlessly fascinating, because some of it will never know. 
but also the last party that Scott sent back when he chose the final five in his diaries, um, in parts that the women edited out, it said that um, that party had perhaps taken too much food, more than their fair share. So there was not enough for the South Pole team returning. And those notes uh, have been uh, sort of put away in archives and they weren't allowed to be published till very recently. So a lot of this information is literally newly available because of the time frame of when it's allowed to come out. Um, so that's one of the theories. Another is that the fuel cans had cork stoppers and because of the freeze and thaw, perhaps they'd come loose. Um, and um, so, yes, there's, there's a lot of different theories about what happened. Or was it that the dogs should have come further south? Why didn't they? Maybe if they had, they would have brought food and then they would have survived. And yes, a big weather event. So right at the end, Oates obviously had walked out of the tent when he realised he wasn't going to be able to go on. And he said, in order that the others didn't follow him, he said, I may be some time and walked out. He didn't even put his shoes on. He knew he was suicide. So he walked out to his death. By the time Catherine describes Captain Oates' disappearance in the book, she's given you a really good understanding of how these constant freezing conditions can wear down someone's body. So Oates had been slowly but steadily deteriorating, and his decision to just walk out into the snow in order to spare his friends having to make life-threatening decisions in order to take care of him was, in my opinion, nothing short of heroic. Then the other three carried on, and... um, they were all ready to go to the final depot, which was only about 10 miles away. Um, bearing in mind by this time, they're very, very weak. But there was a blizzard and the blizzard went on for a long time. And by that time, they were too weak to go. That's the theory. That's the theory. That's all we know, because we only have their diaries to go on. Possibly Wilson and Bowers would have survived if they'd just gone by themselves, because by that stage, Scott had a frozen foot, so he couldn't go anywhere. Um, And I think that those two on the edge of that picture of five definitely would have survived if they had just gone by themselves and left Scott in the tent, but they weren't prepared to do that. Yeah, it seemed like they were just too committed, obviously, to the group, to solidarity, to do that. Exactly, which is interesting when you look at the equivalent expectation of solidarity with the women. So um, Kathleen, Scott and Oriana became friends for the first time. Um, straight after this and they supported each other when they found that there were sort of distasteful exhibitions of for example the lining of the husband's tent the tent that they died in was exhibited at Earl's Court and they both um, combined forces against the exhibition to try and make it more tasteful Um, and uh, sorry Caroline and Emily became friends so that is good and Caroline commissioned Lois to crochet an altar cloth for her, which I think is a very clever way of giving her money. The thing that is really annoying about having written a non-fiction story is I'm absolutely sure that there would be letters between Emily and Lois, but I have never managed to find them. And these examples are some of the first that we see of the women really taking hold of both the relationships that they had between each other, but also kind of grabbing hold of the narrative surrounding their husbands and sons. Because really, almost as important as the expedition itself is the story that's told about it afterward. 
Was it a success or was it a failure? Did the participants of the expedition behave in a heroic or a cowardly way? Because when you don't grab hold of that narrative, then it's left open for other people to fill in the blanks. And so we see this group of women really taking control of the way that the world would see their husbands and sons for generations to come. So at this point, straight after the uh, men died, their reputations were inviolable. They were in the ascendant. They were just heroes. You know, that's it. And then um, one of the other men from the expedition, Apsley Cherry Garrard, wrote a book called The Worst Journey about a journey that Edward Wilson and Bertie Bowers and he had done to the Empropengo colony in the winter before they had gone to the South Pole. So Cherry survived this expedition and wrote this account. And in it, he described Scott as sometimes weak and peevish. And when Kathleen Scott found that, she was incredibly cross and she decided that she wanted to sort of counter publish. So she gave the love letters that Scott had written her, sometimes just literally he'd written a note saying, I love you and sent it back with the dog team. Um, and she gave these letters to a man called Stephen Gwynne and Stephen Gwynne wrote another biography to sort of um, offset Cherry's biography. And interestingly, Caroline Oates read that and in it, it said, when Oates failed, the uh, fate of the rest of them was settled. So instead of blaming Taff Evans for everyone's death, Stephen Gwynne, the biographer that Kathleen Scott had chosen, effectively blamed Oates. And so Caroline was incandescent about this. And she, in a letter to, uh, I think it's... Um, Emily Shackleton, she became friends with Emily Shackleton, I think it's to her, says, I can't believe that Kathleen Scott allowed these letters to be published. They should have been burned on her remarriage because by this stage, Kathleen Scott had got remarried. But actually what she was upset about was that it was blaming um, her son for the tragedy for the first time. So it's interesting. You, you have to read into these letters as well. It's not, it's not straightforward. Uncovering women's stories often isn't straightforward, but that's what makes it such a satisfying challenge. And as Catherine dug more into these women's lives, she revealed what amazing things they did after the dust settled from the Scott expedition. There's this long list of fascinating things that some of these women continue to do with their lives, including participating in World War I, being awarded commander of the British Empire, discovering an animal species, and getting involved in the League of Nations while others, whether by choice or by circumstance, faded into obscurity. But all of these women, Kathleen, Oriana, Caroline, Emily, and Lois, were remarkable examples of forging on through crippling uncertainty and seemingly impossible obstacles with what Catherine calls courageous hope. And in the same way with these wives and widows, um, you know, they were living in hope, in very courageous hope. and perhaps that hope is delivered on because as I was saying to you before we did this, um, the, uh, the data that Scott brought back from the Antarctic is now being used. It's an essential part of how we measure climate change. So the ice cores that have been taken a hundred years ago are now measured against ice cores now to measure the change. All the glacial measurements, the blue-green algae that they collected, they can now do DNA experiments on it, which they couldn't then because we didn't have that technology. So it's a kind of, it will always deliver those 
that exp expedition. So, you know, success or failure, discuss. Part of it is that um, when they first sent their uh, menfolk off to the Antarctic, they were at St. Catherine's Docks in uh, London, and they didn't know that they were going to have a common legacy. They didn't know that their men were going to be chosen. The men didn't know. Scott didn't know who he was going to choose. So in that point, they're all in ignorance, but that they're all together on the dock. And then when the boat comes back in 1913, um, Kathleen had asked if she and Oriana could be on the boat because she wanted to make sure that when the boat came back into Cardiff, it was a triumphus. It wasn't a tragedy. She was certain to make it, um, you know, a positive, a positive thing. And interestingly, um, that is on Pathé, uh, and you can find it on YouTube, the clip of that boat coming back. But the British government had made a strategic move because this whole story is against the background of the suffragette movement. And Emily Davidson, the suffragette who um, threw herself in front of the king's horse at Newmarket, I think it was, that death was caught on three cameras. And it's interesting to set that against this death, which happened and the, in, in, in the middle of nowhere, the bodies were never repatriated and the news didn't come back for a year. This death was the first one to happen absolutely on the news. Um, and so the suffragettes were going to make Emily into a martyr. So when the government realized this was gonna happen, they laid on some trains to make sure that there would be enough crowds welcoming in the Terra Nova. So they were trying to, um, I think it's called throw a dead cat or something in the news now. <laughs> They're trying to make a distraction. I think that's how news people talk about it. And so when the Terra Nova came back in, uh, Kathleen and Oriana were on board with Peter and they made sure that it was a positive thing. Then uh, Lois was on the dock because she hadn't been invited. And Emily and Caroline, I think Ka Kathleen had tried to keep them out of it because she thought they might come over all Victorian and wear black and wail. Um, so they all meet at that point, and then they all have a choice about how they are going to live the rest of their lives, how they're going to manage the, you know, curate the story for themselves and their family and the public. And that's what I think is their legacy, how they do that. So when we are in a similar situation, you know, it's never going to be as extreme, I hope, I hope, touch wood and everything. Um, <laughs> then how, how would you do it? How would you do it? So that's the question I ask myself all the way through. So I find uh, it very interesting. I can see how not to do it through some of the ways they choose to do it. And I can see how I would like to think that I would do it. And um, so that's how I read the story. In kind of in all expedition stories, there is the need afterward to create the narrative that you want of what happened there and what the legacy is going to be. And I think that's very poignant to see that the women were the ones that were left to create that narrative. What will the legacy of their husbands and sons be? And they have set quite a standard. Yes, well, quite. I mean, could any of us manage to live up to that? And, and it doesn't need to be that there's a parallel in exploration. It doesn't need to be a literal parallel. It's a metaphor for, you know, having a vicarious experience where one of a couple or your son goes and does something and how are you going to manage so that is the idea of, of how it should work you should feel this story from the inside out 
you should be walking around in the Antarctic and walking around the lives of the snow widows, if possible. <laughs> if that was the goal, I think you carried it off very well. So if we, if we were to sit here and talk about all of the points of the books, all of the nuances, all the questions I have, we would be here for three days. So I like, this is such a thought provoking and beautifully written book. And I'm so grateful that you spent the time with me today to talk about it and to share this amazing story. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a complete pleasure. Thank you. As you may have already been able to glean from this conversation, Catherine intentionally painted the portraits of these women in a way that places them firmly into historical context. And that means that in this book, Catherine is inviting us to travel to the past, warts and all, to try to understand a mindset that, as she says, is completely alien to us now, instead of painting it in a way that only glorifies the past. And only by understanding that mindset can we grasp the gravity of both the contradictions and the tremendous strength of the Snow Widows. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation about the beautifully written, untold story of the Snow Widows. For updates and additional info about broadly underestimated episodes and content, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.